So today is the second Sunday after the Epiphany. And the epistle is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Brethren, we have different gifts according to the grace that is given us, either prophecy to be used according to the rule of faith or ministry and ministering, or he that teaches in doctrine, he that exhorts and exhorting, he that gives with simplicity, he that rules with carefulness, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation, hating that which is evil, cleaving to that which is good, loving one another with the charity of brotherhood, with honor, preventing one another, in carefulness, not slothful, in spirit, fervent, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessities of the saints, pursuing hospitality. Bless them that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Being of one mind, one towards one another, not minding high things, but consenting to the lowly, be not wise in your own conceits. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the beginning of the second chapter of the gospel of St. John. At that time, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the marriage. In the wine failing, the mother of Jesus says to him, They have no wine. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what is it to me and to thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother says to the waiters, Whatsoever he shall say to you, do you. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three measures apiece. Jesus says to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus says to them, draw out now and carry to the chief steward of the feast. And they carried it. And when the chief steward had tasted the water, made wine, and he did not know whence it was, but the waiters knew who had drawn the water, the chief steward called the bridegroom and says to him, Every man at first sets forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. My dear faithful, in the book of Tobias, there is a young woman named Sarah who is experiencing some major difficulties with her marriages. Um, she becomes engaged to a young man, and then she marries him, and then on the night of, of their marriage, her new husband drops dead. And this doesn't just happen one time or, or two times, but this happens seven times in succession on the night of her marriage. Her new husband drops dead. So Sarah prays to God and, and she asks him to deliver her from her reproach. She doesn't, she says to God that she doesn't know why he willed that all seven of her husbands be killed but she does know that there's a crown waiting for those who suffer tribulations in this life. Scripture says that God heard her prayer and that God sent the angel Raphael to 
Tobias, a young man named Tobias. And the, the archangel guides Tobias to Sarah, and he tells Tobias to marry Sarah. And Sarah's parents consent to the wedding. But on the night that, that, uh, that they're married, um, Sarah's parents tell the servants, go, go dig a grave. Um, get the grave ready, um, you know, just in case Tobias dies. But Tobias was not like the seven other husbands who were pagans. All the, the seven others were pagans, and, and Tobias was a God-fearing worshiper of, of the God of Israel. And Tobias really wanted to serve God, first of all, in his marriage. So on that night, he said to his new wife, Sarah, arise and let us pray to God today and tomorrow and the next day, because for these three nights we are joined to God, and when the third night is over, we will be in our own wedlock. For we are the children of saints, and we must not be joined together like heathens that do not know God. And Scripture says, They both arose and prayed earnestly both together. And the following morning, Tobias' parents peeked in on their room and found the new couple sleeping peacefully in their beds, both of them alive, and told the servants, go cover the grave. So today, I want to talk to you about marriage and how it is so important that you do not live your marriage like the heathens that do not know God, but rather that you live your marriage like the children of the saints, that you live marriage as a sacrament. And mainly what I want to do is just to instruct you about the nature of marriage in three regards. About, firstly, about marriage as a natural institution. Secondly, about marriage as a sacrament. And thirdly, about marriage as an image of the union between Christ and his spouse, the church. So, firstly, marriage is a natural institution. We know that marriage was established by God at the same time that he created the first human beings. The fact that he only made two human beings, that he made them male and female, and that he made them husband and wife, indicates to us that marriage clearly comes from God. The first arranged marriage in the history of the world was the first marriage. It was a marriage arranged by God the Father for his two first human children, Adam and Eve. So marriage is not a human institution. It's not something over which humans have power. Humans can't configure marriage. It is a natural institution. It's written into the very fabric of human nature. So Humans have no more power to change marriage than they have to change the law of gravity. They do not have divine power over nature. They would have to have the power to change nature in order to change marriage, and we just don't have that power. As a natural institution, marriage is directed to natural ends, to natural ends for which God instituted marriage. First of all, Children, that children be brought into this world. It's by God design. The only way children can come into this world is by the union of one man 
in one woman. There's no other way. That's just part of the natural order of things. So marriage is directed, firstly, to the procreation of children. Because of the fact that the only way children can come to this world is through one man and one woman, it makes it clear that the procreation of children must be one of the natural purposes of man and woman coming together in marriage. The second purpose of marriage is the mutual support of the spouses, that they sustain one another, that they be um, a, a support for one another in their life. They do this by their marital intimacy. They do this by sharing their life together with its joys and sorrows, its, tri- its trials and happinesses. They accompany one another in their life it, through thick and thin and support one another in all that, that occurs in their life. So these are two natural purposes. Having children is a natural purpose. So mutual support is a natural purpose. And these things, because they're, they're at the natural level, they can be accomplished by natural means. It's within your power to accomplish these things. You have human nature. That's all that's necessary is human nature in order to accomplish these natural ends. They're, they're simply accomplished by the physical and spiritual union of a man and a woman. You don't need supernatural power to do that. Now, this is the sort of marriage that exists outside of the Catholic Church, a natural union with natural ends. And, of course, it's not bad. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It is, it is a very great good marriage, this marriage as a natural institution to accomplish the procreation of children, a very wonderful thing, and the mutual support of the, of the spouses, also a very nice thing. But your marriage as Catholics must be something much more than marriage as was practiced by the pagans or marriage as merely a natural thing. And the reason for this is that our Lord came onto this earth and supernaturalized marriage. He gave marriage the power of producing grace, that the institution of marriage from that point would not just have a certain natural power to beget children and provide mutual support through the complementarity of the sexes, but it would also have the power to produce supernatural grace, which would lead the couple to a supernatural goal, which is heaven. At the wedding feast of Cana, the inventor of marriage was there. Of course, the couple didn't know that. No one knew that the very inventor, the creator of marriage, was present at the wedding feast. And our Lord changed water into wine as a symbol of turning something that was merely natural into something supernatural. From that point, marriage had the capacity of not just being a natural institution, but also of being a supernatural sacrament. It was the day on which our Lord instituted marriage as one of the seven sacraments. And when it became a sacrament, when marriage became a sacrament, it did not lose its natural purposes. It wasn't like at that point we're saying like, okay, now from now on, marriage is no longer going to be about the procreation of children and the support of the spouses. Not at all. It would still retain those natural purposes, but now through the achievement of those natural purposes, 
a supernatural effect would also be achieved. There would also be a supernatural purpose to be achieved in the begetting of children and in the mutual support of the, of the spouses. Now those two ends of marriage themselves will become a means to a higher end. Now the husband and wife are not meant to stop at the procreation of children and providing one another mutual support, but they are meant to use those things for, to attain a higher goal, the supernatural goal of heaven. So in a sacramental marriage, the marriage that, that you have as Catholics, you bring children into the world in order to get them to heaven. And in the sacramental marriage that you have, you support one another as husband and wife in order to assist one another to get to heaven. So you don't just stop at the attainment of merely earthly goals, but you look to that supernatural goal, the eternal goal of heaven, and you seek to achieve that through your marriage. How do you do that? Well, it has to be through grace. When marriage becomes a sacrament, it becomes like all other sacraments. Sacraments, as we all know from our catechism, are outward signs instituted by Christ to give grace. Marriage is a sign. It's a sign, the, the consent, the contract that is formed between the man and the wife is a sign of the union of Christ and his bride, the church. The mutual consent that they exchange on their wedding day is a sign of, of the union between Christ and his spouse. And marriages or sacraments, when the sign is present, they produce grace. They are outward signs that produce grace. When the sign is present, grace is produced. When the consent between the two spouses is there and it's ratified by God, from that point, your marriage has the capacity to produce grace every single day in your marriage. And the graces are meant to go into the souls of the husband and wife and enable them to perform the duties of their wedded state on a supernatural level, to do them for the love of God, to do them in such a way that they achieve supernatural merit, to do them in such a way that they are sanctified through the accomplishment of their duty of state. So that they're not just bringing children in this world, cleaning the house, making money at the job or whatever, but when they do these things, they are becoming holier, that their level of grace increases, and that God is guaranteeing to them that throughout their married life, whenever they're doing anything in their married state, they will receive actual graces that assist them to accomplish their duty of state. So God uses the consent of the couple as a means to produce grace in marriage. This is what makes marriage supernatural. That it has a supernatural end, it's meant to populate heaven, and that it has supernatural means. It has graces now tied to it, associated with it, that are communicated to the husband and wife in their married state that sanctifies them and leads them to heaven. You really have to have faith and believe that God is providing you graces every day of your, of, of your married life 
just as the priest. I mean, the priest has to rely on the fact that, that God is always there in the performance of the duties of his vocation. So too, when, when you are out there as, as a husband doing your job or, or disciplining your children or your wife, you're at home, you're, you're taking care of your children, or you're running errands, or you're taking them to school, or you're instructing them, you have to have the faith that God is giving you graces through your vocation, through your sacramental marriage. And that these graces are meant to enable you to do these things, not just to do these things, that's the natural way, but to do them in a way that is holy. So I mentioned that your, your marriage is meant to symbolize the union of Christ with his church. And now that's what we need to move on to. This third ask, this third point, because we've already talked about marriage as a natural institution. And we've talked about marriage as a supernatural institution, a sacrament. Now we need to talk about the four ways in which your union as husband and wife is meant to symbolize and represent the union of Christ with his church. The first way is in the unity of your marriage. Christ only has one spouse. He's married to the Catholic Church. He's not married to the Baptist Church. He's not married to the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the English Church. Just one spouse. And you also have just one spouse. So monogamy, the monogamous aspect of Christian marriage is a symbol of Christ's own monogamous relationship with his bride, the church. Secondly, the, the, the first point concerns the unity of marriage. The second concerns the fidelity of your marriage. Christ is faithful to his spouse until the end of the world. He will be with his church without abandoning her until the very end of the world. He will never leave her for another spouse. He will never be unfaithful to her. And your marriage as well is meant to be an image of that in that you are meant to be faithful, absolutely faithful to your spouse until death parts you. Insofar as you're faithful to your spouses and you only have one spouse, you're reflecting the union of Christ with his spouse, the church. And as important as these first and second aspects um, are, the third and the fourth are even more important. The first and the second are, we may see them perhaps as negative prescriptions, you know, don't marry another person, don't be unfaithful to your spouse. The third and the fourth are positive prescriptions and really concern the way in which you sanctify your marriage. The third thing is, is that Christ sacrificed himself for his church. What do we mean by this? For Christ to be the head of his mystical body by the church, he had to have grace. He had to have a way to communicate grace to his bride. Well, in order to do that, he had to die on the cross. His death on the cross merited the whole order of grace, this whole body of grace, whereby he could sanctify the members of his church. So he had to go through excruciating pain 
on behalf of his bride, the church, on the cross. And that's why we say, or the fathers say, that, that the church was born from the side of Christ, when, when the side of Christ was pierced with the spear, and the water and the, and, and the blood flowed forth. Um, the church was born from that. So just as Christ dies, sacrifices himself on behalf of his church, so too couples must sacrifice themselves from one another. They have to die daily on behalf of their spouse and their children. They must be convinced that the sacrifices they make under the influence of their sacramental graces are really the main way to make their marriage resemble the union of Christ with his spouse. We know that the most important event of our Lord's life was his sacrifice of the cross. And so, too, the most important aspect of your marriage is the way in which you give yourself in your sacrificial love on behalf of your family. The fourth and the final thing that Christ does in his relationship with his bride, the, the church, is that he sanctifies his church. He doesn't just merit this order of graces for his church. He communicates graces to his church. He's continually sanctifying the members of his church by the graces flowing from his cross. And spouses, too, must want to do this. They must be want to be a source of grace and holiness for their families, such that they somehow sanctify, the, the husband sanctifies his wife and his children. The wife sanctifies her husband and her children through the living out of her duty of state, his duty of state. So you're not meant to do that by by giving your spouse's crosses. He's like, I sanctify my spouse because I provide my spouse many ways to sanctify her, him or her. Um, they have a lot of crosses in their lives. They, they, my spouse bears them quite well. Um, and so my spouse is extremely holy. No, it's not the, the fact that you give your spouse plenty of opportunities to make sacrifices, but again, that you provide a holy and a good example to your spouse. And that that example attracts them to be holier themselves. You inspire them by your practice of virtue. You encourage them in the accomplishment of the good and so on. So this, th- this is a lot of, of information um, in, in this sermon. It's a very didactic sermon. So let's just, let's just go back to the beginning and briefly summarize where we've come from um, and, and see the information I'm trying to impart here. First of all, God instituted marriage when he created the first human beings. He made them male and female, and he made marriage by his design for the purpose of bringing children into this world and for man and woman, a man and a woman, to support themselves throughout their lives. But our Lord raised marriage to the supernatural level when he made it a sacrament at the marriage feast of Cana. And from that point, marriage has the capability of continually producing graces that are meant to enable the spouses to accomplish a supernatural end in their marriage. Marriage now has a supernatural end, heaven, and it has supernatural means, which are graces. And they do this by making their marriage resemble the union of Christ with the church. They only marry one spouse because he's only married to one church. They remain faithful to their spouse until death, just as Christ remains faithful to his spouse until the end of the world. They make sacrifices for their spouse and their children. 
just as Christ sacrificed himself for his church on the cross. And finally, they seek to sanctify one another in their marriage by giving one another a good example and by being a holy uh, spouse to their wife and children or husband and children. So, my dear faithful, this is the sublimity of your life, of your vocation. This, we may say, is why God has created you. For those of you who are married, this is what you are here for, to sanctify your marriage, your sacramental marriage, by the graces that are available to you. This must be your goal as wedded spouses. What a wonderful thing it is that, that our Lord is calling you to, to really resemble his own marriage, his own union with his bride, the church. Do not let your marriage be lived at the level of merely natural water, but make it produce this supernatural wine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.